Good morning, Woodland Hills. Good morning to all you guys in the house and all you folks online. It's good to have you joining us uh, in this time together. That bumper uh, kind of says it all about the new series that we're going to be entering into starting today, Unraveling Truth. And part of the reason why we named it Unraveling Truth is because you may have noticed that we're living in a time when truth is becoming unraveled. And part of the reason it's becoming unraveled is that we live in a world where there's this cacophony of conflicting voices making different truth claims about what they believe. You know, in the, throughout most of history, up until maybe uh, 100 years ago or so, uh, most people were born and died in the same area and rarely left that area. And uh, you can go most of your life, if you're living, depending on where you're living, your location, but for most people... You go most of your life and never have to really engage with people who believe things different than you. And so it's really easy to be a Christian when uh, everyone around you is Christian and you never encounter non-Christians. But the world has shrunk, hasn't it, significantly. And now the internet has shrunk even more. And, uh, and so now we are very aware and we engage with all the time people who have different views, different beliefs. And uh, that raises the question, what is true? How do you know what is true? Amidst this cacophony of conflicting voices, who's to say what is the truth? That's what this series is, is, is all about. Before I get into the message, however, I want to have a couple things to say up front. One is I, I want to uh, encourage you all to log in on this Learnathon. It's just about remembering to do this. I, it just occurs to me, I, I, I've seen a couple of documentaries recently, I read one book uh, that was race related. It didn't occur to me to log on and, and, and to, to register those things. I owe the church about 15 hours right there. So there you go. So we're up to like, what is it now? 70-something. So uh, remember to log on. I encourage us to be, you know, just push the envelope a little bit. Stretch yourself. Uh, this is a, an issue, a, a matter that we need to really be aware on, especially on the history of stuff. Read about the history of race relations in, in America. It's very eye-opening. So there's that. Also, just I have to say this word about... Um, our hearts just go out to uh, the family of, of Tyree Nichols. I'm sure you're all aware of this young man. He's just a great kid. And um, he was murdered by five policemen. Um, and, and so keep uh, the, all the loved ones of his mother especially. My heart just goes out to her. He's, he's calling out for mother while he's being beaten. It's just heart-wrenching to watch that. Um, and there's a problem we have with authority violence in this country that needs to be fixed. But keep the family in prayer. But also as kingdom people, uh, you know, the, the world likes to make you know, all these nice lines between the good guys and the bad guys. And, and what happened there was, when you watch this, it's like, what, were you, what, what was going on in the heads of these five police officers? What were they thinking when they're, they're doing this? But what I know is that they're human beings made in the image of God who have, un have unsurpassable worth. And I'm sure they didn't wake up this morning and say, hey, let's murder some innocent kid. I don't know what happened to them, what got them into that, but I'm sure they're looking at it now and regretting it. And their, their lives and their families and their fathers and their, their, their husbands and, and their life just got completely upended as well. And so be praying for, for, for the, them and their loved ones. Um, I still pray for Derek Chauvin. I just feel like, you know, I, I always encourage people to be praying for the people that you have the hardest time praying for. The ones that no one else is praying for. The ones that everyone else likes to despise and disdain, we're called to also pray for them. So keep them in prayer as well. Also, I have to say something about you know, this 
mass murder, this mass shooting that happened in California in this Asian community. Um, and that was, I read, that is the 33rd mass shooting in America this year. We're not out of January yet. You, there's something so broken in this country with our addiction to this violence. And it's just, I say that just to say this, that the, the, the more violent, I'm just talking to Americans here, those who are listening from different countries, apply it as, as it fits. But here, our witness as a people of peace, peacemakers who are nonviolent, becomes all the more important. And so just stand by your principles and don't ever get, I find in myself there's a tendency to try to be less shocked by it. Like it happens so often you get desensitized to it. It can become a new normal. And that we must never let happen. Uh, we, the horror must always hit us as horrific. And it's hard to, to keep on being horrified, but that's the state of the world that we're in. And um, we're called to live with the opposite witness, bearing peace. All right. So we're, we're in, in a series now on uh, unraveling truth. And the message today is going to be called Hitting Bottom because I want to talk about what do you find when you deconstruct all your beliefs and get down to the rock bottom? What are your rock bottom convictions? And um, what's the foundation that you build on? I actually want to dedicate this message. I've never done this before, but I just feel like I led to do this. I, uh, there's several young people that I'm speaking with about this issue, about what's true and whatever. I had a conversation yesterday with this young lady, McKinsey. She gave me permission to give her first name. And uh, she has had a great experience with God in her past and, and, and was raised in the church, real conservative tradition. Uh, she's always had questions and always had struggles, but her relationship with God was always solid. But now it's becoming unraveled. And, and she says she's on the precipice of agnosticism. It's just coming undone. And we had a great engagement on Zoom uh, for about an hour yesterday, just before we came to the rehearsal here uh, uh, for the service yesterday. And about half of the topics that we're going to be talking about in this series, she brought up. I told her, I go, it's just uncanny that you're, you're it's so confirming to me that, that here's this young person who's articulating these really serious questions and issues and struggles that she's having. And, and half of it was the, the stuff that we're going to be covering in the series. So, McKinsey, she said she's going to listen to the message, and I said, then we'll talk about it later. So, listen up. This one's for you. <laughs> but also for every other McKinsey who's, who's out there. I want to start by reading from the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus is here talking to Pilate, the governor, and... Um, uh, they're having a conversation as Jesus is on trial here. He's on trial. And so we read this. At one point, Pilate asked Jesus, so you are a king? Because Jesus had mentioned, he said, my kingdom's not of this world. So Pilate says, so you're saying you are a king then? Because if you're a king, that means you're an enemy. You're a threat. But Jesus, he says, you say that I'm a king. That's what you say. But for this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate asked him, what is truth? What is truth? Now, several ways you could take Pilate's, you know, comment here. You could take it as being sincere or insincere. He might, maybe he was a real thinker, like Seneca. He was a leader, a politician who was a thinker. It happens once in a while. And uh, uh, he could have been saying, well, what is truth? What is truth? Once in a while, not often. Once, what is truth? He could have been sincere about that. 
But more probably, he was doing something like this. What is truth? Who knows what truth is? You keep the testimony about the truth? Who's to say what truth is? One person's truth is another person's lie. And it really reveals that Pilate doesn't really care about the truth. It's true he doesn't care about the truth about whether Jesus is innocent or not. He doesn't care. What he cares about is political expediency. What's the easiest way to get rid of this problem? Besides, the easiest way to get rid of this problem is to wash his hands, be clean of it, and just give them over to the crowds. See what the crowds decide, and the crowds choose Barabbas, this insurrectionist, over Jesus. So, so it, 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 it's more likely that he's being cynical here. But the question itself, what is truth, is a profound one. Maybe, maybe the most profound question that we could ever ask. What is truth? You're asking, what is real? What's going on here? What is this about? What is existence? You know, and every other question we might ask is wrapped up in this question is what is true? Is it true that there's a God? Is it true that God is love? Who is Jesus? You know, uh, uh, what's the gospel about? What is true? Is, is, is Satan real? Are demons real? Do we have free will? All those things, what is true? What's the real situation that we find ourselves in? All of it's covered in that question, but also the question of what's true about me? It's a personal question. Ask yourself the question, what really is true about you? To what degree is the self that I present my real self? To what degree is by the self I present it's a social construct? To what degree is there duplicity in me? All that's encompassed by the question, what is true? You couldn't ask a more important question than that. It's also important to ask what is true with regard to our own beliefs. Things we hold precious and dear. We need to ask the question, is this truth? Are our beliefs true? Because the, the Christian truth claim is that this is anchored in truth. We don't want to believe things just because they're expedient or because we happen to prefer them or they're nice or whatever. We, we believe these things because we think they're true. But if we think they're true, then we have to be willing to put them under scrutiny and examine them and look at possible objections to them. Someone who is afraid of subjecting their beliefs to scrutiny because their beliefs are just too precious to them, is someone who's really not concerned with truth. What they're concerned with is believing that they believe the truth. But if they really believe, even if they're concerned with truth, then they'd be open to having their beliefs inspected and criticized. Because if what you believe is true, you should have nothing to fear. Bring it on. What are your arguments against what we're holding? What's the evidence against it? Because if what I'm believing is false, then I want to know that. So I can then turn to believe something that's true. And even if I can't find something that's true, I don't want to be believing something that's just a false, that's just a lie. And so we all need to be scrutinizing our beliefs and be open to that. Not only that, but the Bible tells us that we're supposed to be willing to do this. We read this in 2 Peter 3. Peter says, always be ready. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. You have your hope in Jesus Christ. You think that you're going to live forever. And all the folks uh, who are aligned with God are going to live forever. Why do you believe that? And we're supposed to be ready to give an answer. And the, the word for defense there is apolo, apologia. Uh, we get the word apology from it. And today it means saying you're sorry. But in its original context, it didn't mean saying you're sorry. You don't apologize for your faith. But be willing to give a, a rational defense of it. That's what apologia is. Irrational defense of it. Why do you believe what you believe? And I'll just tell you this, that while your testimony is very important, 
and, and, and experiences you've had with God are very, very important. But the age that we're living in right now where everyone's questioning truth, the foundations are being shaken. Uh, that's not going to cut out with a lot of people because a lot of folks know that there's other folks who aren't Christian who have also had great experience with God, and, and they have a testimony. And so who's to decide whose testimony is true? We need to go beyond that and ask what's the rational foundation for our faith, why we believe what we believe. We must be willing to subject it to scrutiny. But as I said, we're in an age right now where uh, the foundations are being shaken. Uh, the, the, the amount of things that we human beings have in common, or I could just say us Americans have in common, and you can apply it to whatever country you're listening to, uh, apply it to your own situation, but, but the number of things in common is diminishing. And we're standing out of the differences. And this question of what is true is becoming increasingly difficult to ask. What's true? Who's the legitimate president of the United States? Can't even agree on that. Some circles. Uh, it's all being shaken. And what's concerning to us, and this is what this series is about, is that there are, unfortunately, many Christians who are subjecting their beliefs to scrutiny and coming to the conclusion that the Christian faith does not stand up to scrutiny. Just in the last couple of years, there have been a number of high-profile Christian leaders who have renounced the faith. I'm sure some of you have heard about some of these, musicians and pastors and re renouncing the faith. This is the last couple of years. Michael Gunger, one of the more well-known ones, kind of just floated out there into a kind of new age spirituality and has renounced the Orthodox Christian faith. One that kind of breaks my heart the most is Derek Webb. Uh, he's a, a singer, songwriter, performer who has, I, I, I really enjoyed his music because it's edgy. Most Christian music to me strikes me as too middle of the road, vanilla, you know, it, it just doesn't have an edge to it. But his, his, some of his songs did, kind of prophetic, in your face, confronting Christians and stuff. And he would, twice he sent me uh, CDs of his. And, and he thanked me because some of my writings inspired some of his, his, his stuff. And I was really happy about that. But 2019, he announces that he's no longer a Christian. He's lost the faith. And uh, his last album was a tribute to being the, the wonder of being beyond belief. Uh, it it breaks, breaks my heart. And so what we're doing in this series is asking why. Why are these people leaving the faith? And it's not just celebrities. There is right now um, something of a mass exodus going on. Here's a few little statistics here. Two out of, Paul Eddy gave me the statistics, the um, recent survey showed that two out of three young people who are going to church at the age of 18, they leave church by the age of 22. Two out of three. That's terrible. What does that bode for the future of the church? Um, the most recent survey showed that 47% of Americans now attend church regularly, regularly being defined as once or more a month. So the bar is rather low for regular, but only 47%. It was, it was at 70% in 1995. So look at that decline, 70 now down to 47% in just uh, about uh, 25 years. The uh, number of people who identify as Christian when asked what faith you have, uh, in America now is at 65%. It was at 80% in 2012. So from 80%, we lost 15 percentage points in 10 years. That's huge. The number of people who identify as nons, they, they don't believe anything, they're nothing. Uh, is now at 25%. It was at 17% in 2009. The stats don't look good. And so what we're doing in this, in this series is asking why. Why are people leaving? What objections do they have? What problems are they confronted? 
and what is our response to it? Um, and so here, here's some of the, I'll give you a little sampling of the things that we'll be, be addressing in the series. Uh, a lot of folks leave church because they have a bad experience with the church. Could be, sorry. Ugh. It could be a, a bad experience with the pastor uh, or, or the congregation. Many times you hear this complaint that um, they find that non-Christians are more loving than the Christians they know in their church. And they're more accepting than the Christians they know in their church. And it's especially true of, of, uh, of folks that maybe aren't neurotypical or, or folks who maybe aren't, aren't uh, traditional gender categories don't fit to them. They're part of the LGBTQ crowd. And they feel like there's more love for them out in the world than there is in the church. And as a result, they walk away from the church. A lot of folks have been turned off in the last several years because uh, they've walked away from especially conservative Christianity, evangelical Christianity, because of its strong alignment with uh, the right-wing politics. And one of, the, one of the tragedies that happens when we too closely align our faith with our politics is that folks who hate your politics now feel justified hating your faith. Keep those things separate, all right? You got to keep them separated. Uh, some folks, the very idea that, that, that you could know an absolute truth for a lot of folks is becoming just implausible. With all the voices out there claiming they know what is true, they're aware that, that, that what you believe is true is going to be largely influenced by, if not determined by, where you're born and what family you're born into and what your personality like is like and, and, and what time period you're born into and what does everyone around you believe and, and all those kind of things, things that are outside of your control. And so it's easy to conclude that, well, truth is relative. depends on who you talk to and where they're from. Can't claim to know one absolute truth. That very idea... It just doesn't fit their worldview, the idea that Christianity has this truth that applies to everybody. Jesus is Lord for everybody? Well, the more relativistic you are, the less sense that makes to you. Then there are folks who have lost faith in a personal God. They may still believe in some kind of a spirit or something like that, but for a lot of folks, the problem of evil has just got... If God is a personal being and has a personal love for each one of us, why does he let so much terrible, terrible stuff happen? Did God love Tyree Nichols? Why didn't God protect him? And so they give them the idea of a, of a personal God because of the evil in the world. Others have just, you know, we're discovering, it seems like every couple of years we discover that the universe is much bigger than we thought. There's 10 times as many galaxies as we used to think there are. And, and, and we're just aware of this vastness of this incredible, mind-boggling, miraculous universe that we're in. And we're so, so, so small. And the idea that there's a creator of this whole thing who loves us little people on this little speck of dust in this little tiny solar system in this faraway galaxy, it feels anthropocentric. It just feels like, oh, come on, it's wishful thinking. Might as well believe in Santa Claus. And so they abandon the idea that there's a personal God. For a lot of folks, the Bible's the main problem. Uh, you know, a lot of folks are taught, as I was taught when I first became a Christian, that if the Bible's the inspired word of God, it's got to be a perfect book. God wouldn't inspire an imperfect book. If God is perfect, then if God inspires a book, the book's got to be perfect. And, and so the Bible's inerrant. It doesn't have any errors. But it doesn't take much. It could be a book you read. It could be a class you attend. It could be a smart person you talk to. It doesn't take much to topple that belief. It took less than one semester for me at the U of M for me to lose my faith. Because I discovered these contradictions and problems in the Bible and, and some historical issues and whatever. And I had to conclude, well, it's not a perfect book. So it's not inspired by a perfect God, and so I lost my faith. Went through nine miserable years, nine, not years, nine miserable months, uh, trying to find my faith again. Fortunately, I got 
climb my way back into it. But yeah, the Bible's a problematic book. If you approach it with the assumption that's supposed to be a perfect book. Um, and by the way, I wrote a book on this. It's called Inspired Imperfection. I think the imperfections of the Bible are part of its inspiration, but that's a different sermon. Uh, a lot of folks uh, have walked away from the faith because they're convinced that Christianity is incompatible with science. For a lot of folks, the issue here is evolution. They can't reconcile evolution with Genesis 1 and 2, so they, they give up on the faith. Others folks draw other implications from science that they think are contrary to Christianity. I've been in dialogue with a guy who, who was a Christian as a young guy, and he walked away from the faith because he became a neuroscientist. And he's convinced that, that uh, uh, science proves that everything is determined. So there's no such thing as free will, and if there's no such thing as free will, there's no such thing as moral responsibility. And since the Bible assumes that human beings are responsible for their actions, the Bible is false, and the Christianity that's based on the Bible is also false. So science is a problem for a lot of folks. A lot of folks really struggle with the idea of salvation and the idea that there's a final judgment. Uh, especially the idea that, and this is taught in a lot of Christian circles, that Christians are the only ones who are going to go to heaven. Unless you consciously confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, well, then you're going to go to hell. And for a lot of these folks, hell is eternal suffering. And that just is increasingly implausible to people today. It's it's, uh, the idea that especially a God of love would send people to hell because they don't believe in Jesus and they never had a chance to hear about him or the person who witnessed to them had bad breath and that turned them off to it or, or, or whatever the issue was, it's a contingency. It's, it's something outside of your control. And, and, and the idea that God would send anyone to hell for eternity is itself problematic, but to do it on a chance thing like that, well, it's just repugnant. Increasingly, the folks who have any kind of moral sensitivity, that's, that seems like a repugnant thing. And think about it, the idea of unending torment. Would God allow any sentient being to suffer forever and ever for no point other than to see them suffer? I can totally understand why someone would walk away from that. Then uh, for a lot of folks, Christianity strikes them as, as, as intrinsically patriarchal. It's, it's uh, male-dominated. And there are a lot of churches where women aren't allowed to uh, have any kind of authority over a man. They're not allowed to be a senior pastors or they're not allowed to preach. And so, in a lot of places, they're not allowed to be on boards. And increasingly in Western culture, that idea that, that men should be ruling over women feels repulsive. It's just, people have a visceral re- reaction to that. And even where, where there's churches that don't explicitly teach this, there's often sort of an assumption that men's voices count more than women's. And that, as I said, is for a lot of folks increasingly revolting. And then finally... This is the last issue we'll cover, but last one I'll mention. There right now is in the light of, of this religious uh, terrorism that we've been dealing with for the last 20 years or so, an increasing number of people, and especially academics, have concluded that religion is intrinsically violent. Especially monotheistic religions are int- intrinsically violent. If you believe that there's one true God and you know the one true God, well, what happens when you meet people who they think they know the one true God and it's different than your God? And that leads to violence. Historically, it has led, often led to violence. And so they conclude that the world would be a much better place if it was free of religion. These are the kind of things that we're going to be talking about throughout this, this, this series. <clears throat> and um, yeah, we're, 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 we're going to take an honest look at this. Here's how we're going to respond to these. 
you know, in, in some circles, the way you respond to someone who walks away from the faith is you shame them. Uh, this is kind of how it worked in my the church, first church I was saved in, this Pentecostal church. The, the assumption was that we know the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, this little group of Pentecostals that I was a part of. And if anyone questions it, anyone doubts it, uh, it's because they've got sin in their life. They're trying to run away from sin. Because it was so obvious that we're right that no one could, could disagree with this if they really were, if they honestly looked at it. No one could disagree with this. So if they disagree, it's because they have some sin in their life. So when I was at the U of M, this first semester, losing my faith, and I took this class on the Bible as literature, um, and we're looking at the Bible as, you know, just literature, and I'm discovering that there's, this is the time where I discovered all these problems in the Bible. So I went to my pastor, who I regard as being a real smart man, and I looked up to him, and I, I, I brought him this chart. Behold my chart. This is a diagram of synoptic relationships. Don't worry about the details of it. Uh, you don't have to, you know, you just get the basic idea. Here's the thing. It compares Matthew, Luke, and, and Mark. And all these lines here, these lines are lines that I drew to show where there's differences. I, I spent three days without any sleep, OCDing on this chart here. Because so much was at stake. And, and he's, I, I don't know if you can see these circles here. But these circles are all the areas where I could not find uh, a, a good explanation to account for the differences. These are the contradictions. See these circles? It's where the lines crisscross. Things happen out of, uh, out of order and things like that. I'll tell you, this bothers me zero today. I have no problems at all. But back then, my faith was on the line because the Bible was supposed to be inerrant. So I, I, gave it, I, I, I went to the pastor's house. He had me over, and I laid this on the table, and I went through it. What, what about this? What about, he started pointing to this, all these things. And I said, we can't just be ostriches, ostriches who, who put our, bare our head in the sand and pretend like this isn't there. We've got to be honestly dealing, dealing with this. And he says, oh, yes, yes, we can't bury our heads in the sand. But then he says, well, Greg, I have a more fundamental question to ask you. Have you been inappropriate with young women <laughs> lately? I went, what? He goes, well, in my experience, if anyone questions the word of God, it's because they're running from God. What are you running from, Greg? I was like, can we deal with the problem? <laughs> and what do you mean by lately? I mean, it's, uh, define that. <laughs> no, I'd actually been a good boy for, for, for nine months since, since I became a Christian. Uh, and, but here, can we just deal with the issue? But the assumption is that you, uh, you know, there, there, there's something else going on. Uh, even if you put the evidence right in front of them. Well, what's really going on? Because that, that, that makes you feel good. If, if you can dismiss everybody as just being sinners, you never have to deal with their issues. And there are groups out there that treat these, these folks who walk away from the faith like that. Maybe not that explicitly, but you, you can find websites where they're calling these people, you know, they went out from among us because they never were part of us. Um, there's some sin in their life. They weren't willing to pay the price for following the one true God. They're backsliders. They've been seduced by the spirit of the time and so on and so on. That's not going to be our approach. I don't know any of these folks who have walked away. I don't even know Derek Webb. I, I know of him, but I don't know him personally. So I can't judge them. I don't know what's going on in their heart and their mind. Leave that to God. And the other thing is that a lot of their complaints, a lot of their objections are perfectly legitimate. So what we want to do is, is, is to... Look at their cases, look at their arguments, the problems that they point out, and not look at them in a straw man kind of way so we can tear them down to feel good about ourselves, but let's look at them honestly in their strongest light. Where do they challenge us? What can we learn from this? 
we've obviously got a serious leak in, in, in this ship, and we've got to plug it. Uh, we're, this is Max Exodus. So we want to learn from this. This is going to be a dialogical thing as we go uh, throughout this, this series, taking an honest look at this. Now, as I present these, and we'll have other speakers as well, we present these problems. Uh, if you haven't confronted these before, it might, it might kind of rock your faith. You might find yourself being challenged. Maybe some are already being challenged. Like, the Bible's not inerrant? Did Greg just say that? Evolution is true? So, this could rattle some cages. So the team that I work with uh, to put together sermons thought it would be good at the, at the very beginning, 11, 10, 15, in the next 18 minutes, to, for me to share the foundation of my faith. How is it that I and Paul Eddy and others, we've looked at these problems all of our life. We, 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 we're not surprised by any of this. None of it takes us off guard. We, we learn the hard way that these problems are there. But we managed to stay within the, the parameters of Orthodox Christianity. How is it that we're able to stay Christian, having being fully aware of all these problems, where others, when they face these problems, float out in outer space, either into atheism or the new age spirituality or whatever? What is the foundation? I have three times in my life uh, deconstructed my faith completely. Last one being 2004 when I took this three three weeks uh, sabbatical, three months sabbatical, uh, and I just had to say, what 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 do I really believe? What is true? And you dismantle everything, and when you hit rock bottom, what do you find? So this message is called Hitting Bottom. And this is the absolute, the most fundamental foundation for my faith. Now, I, I'm going to share it in a very, very, very succinct way. Um, and and if, it, if it fits with you, fine. If you've got a different way of grounding your faith, that's fine too, as long as it's rationally grounded. Be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is within you. Um, be thinking about this. Whether you follow my train of thought or not, have a foundation. So I'm going to share this now. And uh, there's four layers. When I, when, I, when I hit bottom, there's four things that I find. The first one, and it's the most fundamental one, is this. I'm convinced, at the core of my being, that life has a point. Uh, life has a purpose, and that purpose has something to do with love. I actually think that all healthy people would intuit this uh, if their head allowed them to, if they weren't scrambled up. I, I, we just sense that there's got to be a point to this thing and it has something to do with love. Now, I could be wrong about that. Maybe there is no point to this life. Maybe this life is, is reality is one big cosmic burp. You know, the Big Bang happened and, and now here we are. You know, if, for all eternity, there's this super condensed little speck of dust, all the matter of the universe, all the energy was condensed in the size of a pinhead, or maybe it was a dime. People argue about that. But then at some, at some point, it exploded. And if you ask what changed to make it explode when it didn't explode before, the answer is you can't ask that question because we're talking about a singularity, which simply means we have no clue. Uh, and it's exploded, and no rhyme or reason. There's no mind behind this. There's no purpose, no intentionality. Everything is simply a chemical reaction, a cosmic burp. A burp. And, and so love is simply a cosmic burp. It's a chemical reaction. And if it feels to us like it's so meaningful, like this is the meaning of life, well, that's just because we evolved to feel that way. It must have some evolutionary advantage, but there's nothing real to it. That's possible. But it's a hard sell. Uh, for me, it's just a very unsatisfying intellectual explanation for things. But here's something else I couldn't ever quite get my mind around, even when I tried to be an atheist after having lost my faith because of all this stuff. How is it that if we're just... Products of this chemical reaction, this cosmic burp with no point, no reason, no morality, no value, no anything, just chemical reactions. How is it that this burp evolved beings like me 
who long for something that doesn't exist. I mean, people long for love. People, they long for their life to have a purpose, and they, their purpose is about love. People commit suicide because they think life has no purpose or because they think there's no love. How is it that we long for something that doesn't exist? Um, you look around in nature, and in every other example, when there's beings, animals or humans, who have longings, have needs, it's because there's something in nature that can address those needs. So you have sex drives, and there's sex. And you have hunger, and there's food. And you get thirsty, and there's water. And you need air, and there's air. How weird it would be if you had, if you're suffocating for something that, and air never existed, you know? It, it, that's unintelligible. But here we are, we have this longing for meaning, for purpose, for love. And yet, according to that theory, it never existed. It's like the Sahara Desert, by chance, evolved fish in the middle of the Sahara Desert. And the fish flop around for a few miserable seconds before they die because they're, they're longing for water so they can breathe. And yet, there's no water in the Sahara Desert. Uh, they're just freaks of nature. Um, that is not a very intellectually satisfying position to have. But that's exactly what human beings are. If, uh, if, if this is all just a cosmic burp, we're like fish in the Sahara Desert, flopping around, longing for meaning, longing for purpose, longing for love, and it never has existed, and it never will exist. We're the products of a very mean, cosmic, meaningless joke. I, I can't prove that life has a purpose and that purpose is love, but I'm confident enough to say I'm going to live like this. I'm going to live on the assumption that life does have a point and that purpose is love, because I think it's more reasonable to, to live like that than it is to live as though... There was no point, and that love was not real. So point number one is, I think love is real. It's a purpose for everything. But then comes my second layer. And I'm giving you here a real super condensed snapshot of all this. It's this. If life has a purpose, and the purpose is love, well, then there's got to be a purposer, and there's got to be a lover. Uh, if life has a purpose, and the purpose is love, then there's got to be a being who's intentional, and he... This being is intending love, which then brings you to basically a conception of God. I think ultimate reality has got to be a personal reality because love can't just be a chemical reaction. It's a personal interaction thing. And so if God is love and love is a purpose for everything, uh, then God's got to be an intentional being. He created us on purpose. There's a, there's a point to it all. Now, I've got a lot of other good arguments for believing in God. The ontological argument, the cosmological argument, the design argument, the teleological argument. A lot of good arguments. But we're talking about what's rock bottom here. Most fundamentally is that for love to be the point of everything, there's got to be a cosmic lover. So I believe God is love. And that leads me to my third layer. And this is the all-important one. Well, they're all important, but this one's particularly important. It's about Jesus. Here's the thing. If, if, if God is intentional and God is a lover, and so that means we're here on purpose, uh, God intended us, it makes sense then to ask the question, well, what does God want from us? Has God ever communicated with us? Uh, is it, if God's a personal being, if I, were to, if, if I as a personal being were to create personal beings and put them on a planet, I, I, I would interact with them. I'd, I'd, I'd communicate with them. So has God communicated with us? And you could talk about how God communicates to us through inner voices and through the nature or whatever. But we're talking about rock bottom here. What's the most demonstrable way that God's communicated with us? Now, if you look at different world religions and, and different writings and stuff, you find a lot of claims to have revealed God. 
Uh, you, you find Allah being revealed in the, in, in the Quran and Yahweh is revealed in the Old Testament and, and uh, you've got Krishna is, is revealed in, in the Upanishads. Uh, you go back long enough in ancient Greece and a lot of folks thought Homer revealed God. He revealed the nature of Zeus and things like that. And of course, the New Testament claims to reveal God through Jesus Christ. Now, I find value in all those stories. I find good and I find bad stuff in all those different stories. But there's two things about the Jesus story, the gospel story, that stand out. The story of God becoming a human being and dying on the cross. That's what the New Testament says about God. And there's two things that make it stand out. Number one, uh, I contend that if you, if you understand the gospel story on its own terms, uh, you realize that it is the greatest love story that could ever be told. You can measure the depth of someone's love by what they're willing to sacrifice for another and measure it against the merits of the other that they're, that they're, they're, they're loving. So, so a king who falls in love with and marries a beautiful uh, queen who's also wealthy in royalty, well, that's a normal love story, right? But if there's a king who fell in love with a peasant girl and was willing to sacrifice his kingdom and all of his money and all of his power and all of his reputation out of love for this peasant girl, well, that's a greater love story because there's a greater sacrifice. And if this peasant girl, let's say, instead of being just enamored with the king, if she was unfaithful to the king and, and got herself kidnapped, so this king not only had to give up all of his, his, his royalty and power and money, but, but he had to actually give up his life to rescue this peasant girl uh, from her kidnapper, well, that'd be a greater love story still. And that, folks, is basically the story of the gospel. God, according to the gospel, God has this love for these human beings on this little tiny planet, a little tiny solar system in a faraway galaxy. God is in love with these folks to the point he wants a marriage-like relationship with them. He, he, throughout the Bible, he calls his beloved his bride. God wants a bride. And, um, but this bride, though God loves us, we rebelled against God, we rejected God, We've, we wanted to go our own way, do our own thing, call our own shots, build our own little heaven here on earth. And we ended up Falling into the power, under the power of these evil forces, forces of evil, called Satan in the Bible, or principalities and powers, where we've been kidnapped. And so God, in his great love, becomes one of us, takes on the nature of his bride. And that already is crossing an infinite distance. But then he goes even further, and he offers up his life on the cross. And the all-holy God, follow this now, becomes our sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And the all-perfectly united God, becomes our curse, our, our God's separation, the effect of all sin. Which means God experiences his antithesis. That means that there's no extreme that God could go to that would be further than he went out of love for us. In all eternity, God couldn't do anything more than he did for us. He went to the furthest extreme possible, experiencing what is opposite his own nature. And that's the very definition of pain when you experience something that's against your nature. It's painful. So God, oh holy God, becoming our sin. This means this is the greatest love story, not only that ever has been told, but the greatest love story that ever could be told. And so on a strictly literary level, even apart from any historical considerations, there's something about this story that rings true. There's a yes to it. Uh, it, it this is why C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien um, both describe the gospel as the greatest myth ever told. And by myth, what they mean is a story that expresses what's fun, uh, fundamental human intuitions and, and fundamental longings of the heart. No story expresses it more beautifully than the gospel story. So it has this ring of truth. 
Even if I didn't think any of it was historical, I would still hold it up as the greatest myth. Uh, something to, 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 to emulate because it captures this idea that life has a purpose and that purpose is love. But the second thing that makes this story stand out in contrast to all the other stories is that we have every reason to believe that this myth is actually historical fact. C.S. Lewis describes it like that. The gospel is myth become reality. We are given all, and this, this is what surprised C.S. Lewis and why he became a believer. And frankly, the main reason why I continue to believe is that we are giving all the reasons we could ever be given for a historical event, we're giving all these reasons to believe that this actually happened. It actually took place in history. Now, I can't, I can't begin to get into that because I only have six minutes left. Can't, and I haven't even gotten to my fourth layer yet. So I got to hurry. But um, uh, some tell the kids, church will be three minutes over. The, uh, um, I'll just point you to a few resources here, all of which are, all of which are self-serving. Uh, if you want to go into this historical stuff, uh, Paul Eddy and I wrote this book called The Jesus Legend. And we take on every scholarly theory out there that claims that the Gospels are substantially or entirely legendary, and I think we do a pretty good job of dismantling that. It's a, it's, it, it's a really hard sell. I can't get into all the reasons why, but check it out. Now, if that's a little too academic, because that's a 406-page book, uh, a, a, a more popular version of that is Jesus, Lord, or Legend. Um, uh, you can check out that for the historical reasoning behind it. And if you want the simplest of all, check out Letters from a Skeptic, where I talk about this with my dad. Uh, there's just a lot of historical reasons there. And so I, I, I feel like, I, I, does that prove that Jesus Christ is Lord? Does it prove that, that, that the Gospels reflect the, the historical Jesus to a large degree? Well, it doesn't prove it in the sense that, 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 that you couldn't possibly doubt it. But I believe that I have, and if you look into it carefully, I think you have far more reasons for believe, to live as though Jesus Christ is Lord, because you have good reasons for believing that he is actually Lord. Far more reasons to do that than to live your life as though Jesus was not Lord. And so I stand solid on my conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord. I think in, God in actual history became a human being and suffered on the cross, rose again, and, and our salvation lies in that. And that leads me then to the fourth layer, and it's simply this. Uh, if, you, if you read the Gospels, just as historical documents, you know, putting the, subjecting them to the same kind of uh, questions that you'd ask any historical document, you can't help but conclude that Jesus, along with his Jewish contemporaries, believed that the Bible is divinely inspired. Now notice, up to this point, I haven't appealed to the Bible at all as an inspired document. When I'm looking at the historical Jesus, I'm just looking at the Gospels as, as I would any other historical works, subjected to the same criticisms. Um, so I, I don't need the Bible to be inspired for me to believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe the Bible is inspired because I already believe Jesus is Lord, and I believe Jesus is Lord on the basis of history, strict history. But now I find that this one who I now call Lord, he clearly believed the Old Testament was inspired, and he also pretty clearly anticipated the New Testament being inspired. I can't prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt, but I've got more reasons to believe that that's true than to, than to think that it's false, so I'm going to live this way. And so now I regard the Bible to be this divinely inspired work. Um, now, there's a lot of questions about interpretation that we'd have to get into, and how does it apply to our life, and all those kind of things, yes, yes, yes. But right now, we're just talking about what's at rock bottom. Just knowing that this book has some kind of unique authority to it, well, that's what grounds our faith. Now that we have reason for believing in Jesus, now everything else we believe will be derived from this book. And so this is, when we come together, a Woodland Hills community, the thing that we rally around, everything that we rally around, every distinctive belief has got to be anchored in this scripture. It's got this authority over it. Do I think it's inerrant? No, I don't. 
But God always uses the weak things of this world to confound the wise. I, I wouldn't expect the God that I know in Jesus Christ is not the kind of God who needs something to be perfect before he uses it. And so we'll, we'll, we'll get into all that kind of stuff. But this is the foundation of my faith. And notice this. As long as, so long as I can keep believing that life has a purpose, that purpose is love, and that means that there's a loving God behind it all who's revealed in Jesus Christ, and it's scripture is authoritative. As long as I keep believing, it, as long as I have reason to believe that's true, it doesn't matter what else is going on. Uh, a church can be really mad and nasty to me. Christians can be hypocritical. You can have people falling by the wayside. Uh, present whatever problems you want about the Bible. Present whatever problems you want about science. Or whatever. It doesn't phase, it doesn't touch the foundation of my faith. Uh, uh, now, if there's, re- if there's historical arguments against the historical Jesus, that could damage my faith, but bring it on. I, I'm not afraid of that. I, I've looked, looked over that. And uh, if what I'm believing is true, I shouldn't be afraid of any kind of scrutiny. But all these other problems then become kind of, they're still important. We got to talk about it because a lot of people are losing their faith over it. But I don't want anyone in this series who's a Christian now losing their faith over this series. Know why you believe what you believe. Be grounded in that. Be prepared to give an answer for the faith that is within you. Hallelujah. And I can't believe I just got through this material in 18 minutes. Rock, can you believe that? that, was, that was a... The key to, bre- to preaching more briefly is to ignore your notes. Yeah, yeah. Because then you got to just kind of shave it down to the middle. I want to end just with this. Uh, there may be some who are listening to this message and, and, and you've never really committed your life to Christ. Uh, and, and, and maybe there's something I said now that you realize that it is a rational thing to do. Faith always goes beyond reason, but it should never go against it. Uh, yeah, there's paradoxes and mysteries, of course. But, but uh, don't put your head in the sand when we confront stuff like this. we got to deal with this kind of stuff. Because we want to believe what's, what's true. So it, it may be that, that, that you've never committed your life to Christ. And I just want to explain to you how to do that. It's, it's, it's just in your, if, if right now you're seeing that you've got more reasons to believe that he's Lord than to believe that he's not Lord, if you're willing to start living as though he's Lord, just in your heart, pray this prayer. Just say, Lord, I repent of living my self-centered life, living for my, on my own as though I could call my own shots. I surrender my life to you. I put my trust in you. I believe that you are real, and I'm going to live as though you're real. And just do that. And that's, the, that's your first baby step in the kingdom. Now, the rest of your life will be living this out. But that's the first step to take, and I encourage you to do it. Father, I thank you that you have not called us to, to check our brains at the door when we come to follow you. You've said, come, let us reason. You, you, you want us to worship you with all of our mind. Help us to be a people who are brave enough to do that, to think deeply about things. And to realize that that's a form of worship. Even if we're questioning you, that's a form of worship because we're using our minds the way that you created them to be used, which is to think. Thank you, Lord. I thank you for a, for a congregation, both online and offline, in-house and out-house. I, I, I thank you for this community that, that, that it has been bold, as was said earlier, uh, bold and, and committed to truth. Uh, guide us and lead us as we struggle with these issues throughout this upcoming series, especially, Lord, for folks who are on the fence or maybe who are thinking about leaving or who have already left. I pray, Lord, that you use this series to bring them in, to bring them in, to realize that the objections they thought were, were, were insurmountable are not insurmountable. Now, Lord, as we leave this place to love you, to love other people, to, to take care of the earth and the animal kingdom, uh, be with us, guide us, use us to be light in this world in Jesus' name. Amen, all God's people said. Amen, amen. Don't forget, we've got prayer up here. Thank you. We've got prayer up here if you need some prayer online. Prayer if you need prayer there. Uh, we've got uh, the MuseCast on Tuesdays, and we've got gathering groups, and you want to check out those gathering groups because they are rocking. 
God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world.